0: Well, it is a much smaller group today, and uh, part of that is summer and a lot of people away, and part of that is we have 18 people on a mission trip to Fairmont, West Virginia. So please remember to be praying for them this week uh, as they serve there, and um, pray that that goes well and that they all get along. So. They crunch 18 people together and then put them with a bunch of other groups of 18 people from other churches and uh, it can make for an interesting dynamic. So please remember to pray uh, for them this week. We are in uh, Matthew chapter 6, actually picking up the very next passage from where we left off last week. This is the sixth sermon in our summer series on biblical priorities and I'm going to read the first six verses of Matthew chapter 7. So Matthew 7 verses 1 through 6. These are words that you have heard before and uh, if you remember about five years ago we did a series on the most misunderstood verses in the Bible and this was one of them. So if you were here then, some of this may sound a little familiar. Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6, this is God's word. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take this speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us once again to this amazing gospel to learn more about your son, Jesus. We ask you this morning to enlighten our eyes that we might see the truth and that you would cause that truth to penetrate our hearts, that we would see ourselves as we are, that we would not fool ourselves into thinking that we're more righteous than we are, and then we may see those areas where our lives displease you. So by your spirit, open this gospel to us, help us to see Jesus. As always for this, we need your grace. Give us the desire to learn from you this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen and amen. Like most of us, John Burke as a pastor in Texas, assumed that he was not a judgmental person. But just in case he was wrong, He tried an experiment. For a whole week, he kept track of his judgments about other people. And here's what he discovered. Judging others is fun. (laughs) Judging others makes you feel good. And I'm not sure I've gone a single day without this sin. In any given week, I might condemn my son numerous times for a messy room. Judge my daughter for being moody, which especially bothers me when I'm being moody, but I have a good reason. Even my dog gets the hammer for his bad breath. Now, some of you may be thinking, wait, are you saying that correcting my kids for a messy room is judging? No, but there's a correction that values with mercy, and there's correction that devalues with judgment. I think most of us can identify with John Burke. We do this all the time. I watch the news and I condemn those idiotic people who do such things. Most reality TV shows are full of people that I can judge as sinful, ignorant, stupid, arrogant, or childish. I get in my car. I find a host of inept drivers who should have flunked their driving tests. Throwing a little condemnation on the DMV for good measure. At the store, I complain to myself about the lack of organization that makes it impossible to find what I'm looking for, all the while being tortured with Muzak, who picks that music anyways. And I stand in the shortest line, which I judge is way too long because, look, people, it says 10 items or less. I count more than that in three of your baskets. What's wrong with you people? And why can't that teenage cashier, what is she wearing, focus on work so I can get out of here? Judging is one of our favorite pastimes. And if we're honest, but we're not, but if we're honest, we're great at judging the world around us by standards that we would highly resent being held to ourselves. Judging makes us feel good because it puts us in a better light. Than others, So most of the time, we're being judgmental, whether we're aware of it or not. And it's difficult to communicate, even non-verbally, without judging. So what do we do with Jesus' seemingly impossible command in today's passage, Matthew 7, verse 1? Judge not that you be not judged. Well, if you remember, one of the most important Uh, rules in understanding the scriptures is context is king. You must understand the context in order to understand the passage. The second major rule of interpreting the scriptures is scripture interprets scripture. This is a warning not to base your understanding of what the Bible teaches on a particular topic on a single verse, but on everything the Bible teaches on that topic. We want the whole counsel of God to inform us. And both of these rules apply to today's topic of right and wrong judging. As I said, we're in the summer series on biblical priorities called First Things First. And last week we looked at the most well-known first command of them all, first seek, which came from the verses right before this passage. And so we moved from one well-known passage to another well-known passage, but this one Maybe the least understood passage or certainly one of the least understood first commands. See, in this passage, the Lord is turning his attention to our heart attitudes. Of course, judge not that you be not judged is a phrase that's used countless times during contentious conversations or in defensive moments when someone is confronted about their behavior. We don't use this when we make judgments about things that don't upset people. So if I watch sports and I make a judgment about a player, like how can he strike out? They're paying him ungodly amounts of money. Nobody says, oh, judge not. It just doesn't happen. Or if a politician says whatever today's dumb thing that politicians say, and I say, how could he say that? Nobody says, judge not. But if I say, what were you thinking when you did that? Then we come out with the Matthew 7, 1 verse, although most people who use it don't know where it is. You see, these are famous words from Jesus that are recited by many, many people, including lots of uh, unbelievers but they're profoundly misunderstood. You could easily argue that this verse is uh, one of the most frequently misapplied verses in the Bible. It's used and abused by Christians and non-Christians alike. Uh, Mark Dever, who's the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist in uh, Washington, DC, said, could it be that in our day, a misunderstanding of Matthew 7-1 has been a shield for sin and has worked to prevent the kind of congregational life that was known by the churches of an earlier day and could be known by us again. Those who mishandled this verse often use it as a shield for sin, a barrier to keep others at bay, allowing them to justify living as they please without any regard for moral boundaries or accountability. Their objections sound like this, aren't we all sinners? What gives us the right to make moral judgments about someone else? Isn't that God's job? However, if we take a closer look at Matthew 7 and the teaching of the rest of Scripture, it's clear this verse can't be used to substantiate unrestrained moral freedom, autonomy, or independence. It was not Jesus' intent. He's not advocating a hands-off approach to moral accountability, refusing to allow anyone to make moral judgments in any sense quite the opposite actually jesus here is explicitly rebuking the hypocrisy of the pharisees who were quick to see the sins of others but blind and unwilling to hold themselves accountable to the same standard that they were imposing on everyone else and we'll unpack that in a minute but first let's zero in again on this verse we're in the sermon on the mount This is the place where Jesus is teaching us what it means to live faithfully as a committed follower of Christ, one who pursues holiness out of reverence for God. Believers are called to live differently, and Jesus is just explaining what that looks like in a very practical sense. His words are not actually hard to understand as he sets up this strong moral ethic that reflects what it means to love God with all your heart. And to love your neighbor as yourself. And it's here that Jesus addresses the issue of hypocrisy. We go back to our text for today. We read, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So this passage is about our evaluation of other people, especially with regard to their faults. How do we relate to people who are at fault? How do we relate to people who are at fault in their treatment of us? One thing we learn is the way we think and speak about them reveals a whole lot about us. If we're quick to condemn them, perhaps we haven't fully grasped God's mercy for us. If we're not merciful to them, perhaps we haven't known the mercy of God for us, at least not as well as we think we have. So Christ's teaching about how we ought to speak and how we ought to correct those who are at fault gives us an opportunity to learn about our own hearts and our own attitudes and to learn if we've understood God's grace the way we should. So here Jesus gives us directions about how we should conduct ourselves with regard to the faults of others. And the first thing we read is a caution about being a judge a caution about being a judge. He says, judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. A critical spirit, a judgmental spirit, a condemning spirit is common to human nature. I think it's more common today. Social media, our relationships, our schooling, our work situations are immersed in judgment. And even though we sometimes joke about it, experiencing it can be really unpleasant. Few things are more exhausting and uh, debilitating than getting hit by harsh, unloving criticism. Even sadder, the church itself, is full of those who make a habit of criticism and condemnation, some think their critical spirit is a spiritual gift. Jesus doesn't agree. Here, our Lord sets the record straight in no uncertain terms. He tells us how we should relate to our brothers and sisters in this matter of being judgmental, and he minces no words. He says, "Judge not, that you be not judged." Now. As I said, these words have been subject to a lot of misunderstanding. These first two words, judge not, have been taken by some to mean that Christians can never exercise any critical judgments whatsoever. Some believe Christians are to be totally accepting, whatever the situation. Christ-likeness is equated with an all accepting blindness. And ironically, you think about it, the world loves opinionated people. The world loves opinionated people. Its cultural darlings are those who are articulate and dogmatic about their positions on politics, art, music, literature, culture, you name it, perhaps sexuality most of all. However, when it comes to those who hold differing opinions, the world hates opinionated people, especially if they represent biblical standards of morality. In those matters, it adores the non-judgmental person. And the reason this text can't be made to say that we are never to judge is both simple and obvious. First, in verse 6 at the end of our text, immediately follows this teaching. Jesus says, do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs but he's actually talking about people. And we cannot obey Jesus' command here unless we judge who are the dogs and who are the pigs. In the same way, a few verses later in Matthew 7 verse 15, he says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. That requires discriminating judgment on our part to know who the false prophets are. There are a lot of other additional scriptures that tell us to exercise good judgment. One of the most important, again, Jesus, John 7, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Christians have an obligation to exercise judgment that's both right and wise. What Christ means when he says judge not is is that we're to refrain from critical condemning judgment. There's a universe of difference between being discerning and being critical. A discerning spirit is constructive. A critical spirit is destructive. And a person with a destructive, critical spirit delights in criticism for its own sake. One of the most prominent characteristics of a critical, fault-finding person is they predictably focus on things that are of little importance, but treat them as matters of great importance. Within the church, that takes on bizarre forms. Judging the spirituality of a couple by observing how they discipline their children. Judging others by the Bible version they carry. Or whether their theology agrees with the critics point for point. And so it goes. We can come up with a dozen more examples. We're not very good on judging what are first order issues and what are secondary issues. And this pettiness about secondary issues is condemned by the Apostle Paul in the strongest terms. In Romans 14.1, he says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Some versions translate that as, accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. In another passage Paul adds, Romans 2, our responsive reading uh, this morning, says, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We set the standard for our own final judgment by our judgmental conduct here in life. And we prove by our judging of others that we know what is right. So if we know what is right but don't do what is right, we condemn ourselves. Perhaps the clearest statement of this comes in James chapter 3. It says, verse 1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. If you become a teacher, if you set yourself up as a religious authority over others, you will be judged by the authority you claim. Do I claim to have an exceptional knowledge and grasp of scripture? I will be judged accordingly. Do I claim to have been an especially wise and discerning servant? I will be judged according to the position I have assumed. How many times did Jesus do that? He was confronted by the Pharisees, and he would look at them, and these were the Bible experts of the day. And how many times do you say, Have you not read? And then he would open the scriptures to them. Part of it is their scriptures, they're already supposed to know. If we set ourselves up as authorities and judges over others, we shouldn't be surprised or complain when we're judged by our own standard. That's what Jesus says in verse 2 of our passage. He says, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Now I think that one of the big questions here is how does this affect us eternally? There are two eternal judgments. One is the separation of believers and non-believers, the sheep from the goats which you find in Matthew 25 believers of course are the sheep who will go to be with God and who will appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive their proper rewards and there, God will judge us as we have judged others judgmental believers will still go to be with God forever but they will have very little reward for their critical spirit will have diminished much of the good that they have done very few of us would dare pray God, judge me as I judge others. Our Lord means to put a holy fear in us here so that we'll put away our critical attitudes. God is going to judge us as we judge others. The tone of our life is going to become the tone of our judgment. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. There's nothing more ungodly than a critical spirit. There's nothing more un like than the self-righteousness that's always looking for something wrong in someone else. And now the Lord extends the argument even farther. We see his caution about being a hypocrite. Verses 3 through 5 is caution about being a hypocrite. This is the speck in the log. It says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye, you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. Jesus has shifted here. Now he's not just talking about truth, He says something about love. And what he's telling us is that truth without love isn't really truth. So he gives us this famous, it's an almost comical statement. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not see the log that is in your own eye? Essentially, what you have here is a blind ophthalmologist. An ophthalmologist is an eye doctor. The picture we have here is ludicrous if you think about it. The word translated log is not like a log you would put on a fire when you're camping out. This is like a rafter in your house. (coughs) And a speck is this minute piece of sawdust where you have this monstrous log in your eye. Your vision's not just impaired. You are absolutely blinded. And the idea of lending a helping hand to another person who has a speck in their eye is not only comical, it's impossible. I think it's interesting that Jesus speaks of the faults of others in terms of specks, but our faults in terms of logs. The Lord knows our tendency is to actually think the other way around. We think the other people's faults are big. Ours are just minor mistakes. You don't have to amen that part. (laughs) Other people's faults, especially directed towards us, are horrible. They're terrible. They're so mean. But our faults, they're just little glitches that we have once in a while. Should be easily smoothed over. And Jesus has reversed the picture. And he telling tell us, be careful about a fault-finding spirit. He reminds us to keep a sense of proportion about the sins of others. Again, the picture is a small speck in others and a big log for ourselves. And our tendency is to be harsh with those who've harmed us or done us wrong. But the Lord says, I want you to be harsh with your own sin. And I want you to be patient with the faults of others. The tragedy, of course, is that the situation that Jesus portrays here is common. In our passage, Jesus is condemning, judging others for doing the same thing you do. He's condemning the pharisaical practice of harshly condemning others while refusing to examine our own lives for sin. We find it so easy. To turn a microscope on another person's sin while we look at our own sin through the wrong end of a telescope. We can use some strong terms for somebody else's sin, but we tend to use mere euphemisms for our own. And we can spot a speck of phoniness in someone else from a mile away, but utterly miss the logjam of phoniness in our own lives. And furthermore, we especially hate seeing our own faults in someone else. I mean, wrath towards the speck in someone else's life often comes from the suppressed guilt over this exact same sin in our life. And Jesus is telling us that log-toting speck inspectors are hypocrites. They don't care about the speck in the other person's eye, what they really care about is building themselves up in their own eyes. And it's a universal pattern. Self-righteousness turns harshly critical, which produces a false compassion. Let me help you with that speck, Which in turn produces damaging contempt for that person. So what do we do instead? Jesus not only tells us to stop being a hypocrite, but to start being a brother or sister in Christ. And so we read his caution about being a brother or sister. Again, back to verse five. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. We're to judge ourselves first. First, take the log out of your own eye. Both the Old and New Testaments call us to do this. And when we do it, we begin to see ourselves as we are, and we see others as they are. And instead of being uh, harshly critical, we weep for ourselves and for them. When we've removed the log from our own eye, then we can see clearly to take the speck out of our brother's or sister's eyes. Jesus does not encourage this laissez-faire attitude towards fellow believers. He actually does want us to discern the sins and shortcomings in others. But he wants us to see them through clear, self-judged eyes. Eyes that are like his, that are tender and compassionate. You think about it, a number of you parents have done this, some of you may have. The procedure for removing a speck from an eye is difficult and delicate. There's no part of me more sensitive than my eyes. I have to go to the eye doctor, I don't go as often as I should, and I hate going to the eye doctor. There, I mean, if I had a list of things I hate, eye doctor's right up near the top. And I usually apologize as soon as the doctor walks in the room. Usually the first thing I say is, "Okay, I'm like the worst patient you've ever had. Because as soon as you start to get close to my eyes, they're just going to shut. And I just can't do it. And if you shine the light, that's just like death itself. And and some of them just kind of laugh and do it anyways. The eye is incredibly sensitive. The instant we touch it, it closes. What's required in clearing an eye? Incredible gentleness and carefulness and patience and sympathy. I've often thought I would have to buy like new armrests in the eye doctor's office because I grip those so tight. And I pretty much just crushed them. Um, But now we're talking about souls, not eyes. And in the spiritual realm, the the care should be even more delicate. For we're handling a soul, the most important part of a human being. We have to be humble and sympathetic, conscious of our own sins, and without condemnation. And for that, we need God's mercy. We need to be people who speak the truth In love, because the love of God controls us. And so he reminds us again to be careful to examine ourselves before we presume to examine others. And he gives us this threefold pattern, how we do that. He says, first take the log out of your own eye. First deal with your own faults before you go about the practice of correcting others. The Lord Jesus says, before we correct, before we finish our assessment, we have to examine ourselves. Look at ourselves first, look at our motives. Why am I upset about this? Why do I want to uh, evaluate and rebuke this brother for this? What are my methods going to be? How am I going to do this in an encouraging way, in a way that's profitable uh, for him or for her? Or do I really just want to feel better about myself? Or am I trying to build the church up and build up this brother or sister? And what about my sin? Am I guilty of this thing I'm about to accuse this brother or sister of? First, Jesus says, examine ourselves. First, take the log out of our own eyes. First, repent. Repent of your own sin, then seek to have a broken heart for the sins of others. Finally, the Lord teaches us to correct or reprove them with a view to building them up, not tearing them down with a view to make them stronger, not to make ourselves seem more holy or wise. Jesus gives these instructions in a way that we can go about assessing one another and reproving one another. And basically what he's saying is repent, weep, correct. And we would do well to ask ourselves, who have I been critical of this week? Has my focus on their faults blinded me to my own faults? We need to ask God to help us see ourselves as we are and Jesus isn't done yet Well, that's so like him just when you think he's done when you want him to be done he's not done he has one more caution for us if the previous five verses are commonly misunderstood this one's just plain hard and his last words for us today are caution about being discerning verse six caution about being discerning Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw you pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Jesus is balancing the message he's given in the first five verses. There he'd warned us against having a critical spirit that's quick to judge. In verse 6, though, Jesus says, Though I've called you not to be harshly critical, I have called you to be discerning. Although you shouldn't be harshly critical neither should you fail to distinguish between that which is good and that which is evil that which goes against my gospel and that which is aligned with my gospel he's calling us not to be critical but to be discerning he calls us to exercise spiritual discernment and go through the metaphors that he uses here because he speaks about dogs and pigs and pearls and what is holy. And you need to understand what he means by those things in order to appreciate his emphasis. Now, I haven't fixed that yet. Um, that's condemning. <laughs> I get struck by these verses every time because I'm a dog lover. We have dogs. We've had dogs for years. And so I look at this, and it's kind of a little harsh. I mean, when Jesus speaks of dogs, though, he's not actually talking about those beloved domestic pets of ours. He's talking about large, savage, wild dogs which prowl the streets of Jerusalem, scavenging through rubbish and other things to find food. These are not domestic pets. These are dangerous creatures. And of course, in Jesus' day, the word dog was a standard slur used against Gentiles. Many Jews would have referred to Gentiles as dogs. They were pagan, non-Jewish, unbelieving people. And the Jewish folk of Jesus' day often referred to Gentiles as dogs. But Jesus is not. He's not throwing out a, a slander or a curse word here. He's not slandering any group. He's using this in a spiritual sense. Just as wild dogs in the streets of Jerusalem would turn and attack you should you interfere with their scavenging. So he speaks of people who violently and consistently oppose the gospel and threaten its messengers. And he says, do not give what is holy to dogs. Now, as far as the pigs go, you know the pigs are unclean animals. Not simply in real life, they are, but also in the sense of the Old Testament holiness code in Leviticus. The people of God in the Old Testament were forbidden to eat the meat of pigs. And so when Jesus speaks of pigs, he's speaking about an animal that would have been contemptible in the eyes of his Jewish listeners. Furthermore, if you were to actually cast pearls before pigs, the pigs might mistake those pearls for peas or nuts and attempt to eat them and find out they're inedible and spit them back into the ground and then trample them in the mud. Any good Jewish merchant would know that pearls cost money. They're expensive. They have value. They still have tremendous value today, even more so then. They would have been horrified by the thought of giving pearls to an animal that would trample them. So Jesus is using dogs and pigs to speak of people who are seemingly incapable of appreciating the gospel. They have heard the gospel and they have rejected it or mocked it and maybe even attacked it. There are people who trample the gospel. They take no thought of the gospel. They have no appreciation for the gospel. They don't sense any of its value. And he says, don't throw pearls before swine. What does he mean by the phrase, what is holy? What does he mean by pearls? I think he's referring here primarily to the gospel message. Seems to fit the text best. He's speaking to his disciples about the preaching of the gospel to those who oppose it or who undervalue it or who are apathetic towards it. And he warns them, don't give them what is holy. He wants us to be discerning. The gospel needs to make an impact on how we use words and how those words affect, for better or worse, those around us. Since we've been commissioned to proclaim a message of repentance and faith to those outside the church who need to hear the good news, certainly we need to proclaim the same message of repentance and faith to those inside the church who profess that they have already heard the good news. And therefore, Jesus is not forbidding all moral judgment or accountability. He's forbidding harsh, prideful, and hypocritical judgment that condemns others outright, without first evaluating one's own spiritual condition and commitment to forsake sin. It's my contention, the popular misuse of do not judge reveals just how far the discipline of sound biblical study has fallen. More than that, it sheds light on the state of our culture, a culture that seeks to avoid accountability and avoid responsibility for personal actions but to impose dramatic, drastic, radical accountability and drastic responsibility for the actions of others. That mentality, so evidenced in the cancel culture of today runs counter to the teaching of scripture. The collective teaching of the Bible insists that we who are created in the image of God are morally responsible to God and morally responsible to one another. So to use do not judge as a way of dismissing your own moral responsibility would be to interpret in a way that pits it against the scriptures. I read a story about a young minister in the old Southern Presbyterian Church probably was not wearing a Hawaiian shirt, but the first thing he began to do when he took this church was to begin rebuking the members of the church for various sins. As you can imagine, this was not well received by the congregation. And an older, wiser minister took him aside and said, young man, in the old Southern Presbyterian church, we felt it was our privilege to first weep with a man before we discipline him. And that's good advice. The biblical pattern is to repent, weep, and then correct. And all of us need to take that to heart. And you should do that now. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have given us a king. Thank you that this king loves us and cares for us. Open our eyes that we might see our sin in all the ways in which we trust ourselves instead of you. Have mercy on us, Lord. You are so forbearing, kind, and gracious. Have mercy on us because we're self-righteous sinners. Our self-righteousness usually shows up Not in trying to merit more of your love, but in withholding your love from others and getting irritated and becoming rigid and being passive-aggressive. So Lord Jesus, as our divine cardiologist, as our divine ophthalmologist, bring your grace and truth to bear in our hearts and in our eyes. We want to love as you love and to see as you see. So lead us in the way of the gospel, since you call us to help one another with our specks of sawdust. Help us to have a correctable heart, quick repentance, and the grace of the gospel. Grant that we may live like people who love you, so that we trust your providence and receive your love, and work in each of our hearts this summer as we learn to trust you and your word. And help us to know and believe that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Amen.